0: Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from the Epistle of the Philippians by the Apostle Paul. As he writes to us, beginning in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, selected verses all the way to verse 11. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. But whatever gain I had... and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, as we gather these few moments together, worshiping you, rejoicing in the empty tomb, acknowledging your victory over sin and death in Christ, we want this day for this reality of resurrection to be in this world of resurrection that has now been inaugurated through Christ, the first fruits from the grave. We long in this moment. They would not merely be a past remembrance, nor would it be merely a future hope, but that it would be a present power. We would ask that that Holy Spirit who dwells within us, whom you tell us in Romans chapter 8 is the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, we ask that that Spirit would come now and be stirred within us. That He through uh, your decree, through your guiding and all wise hand would make available to us the illumination of the scripture. That it would jump as it were off the page into our hearts. And would be to us a living and transformative word. That we might say and the testimony might be. This is truly resurrection Sunday. Come and bring us to life and revive your church for the sake of Christ. We ask it in his holy name. Amen. What a joy it is to gather with you on this Resurrection Sunday. This Easter Sunday. This day that is set apart on the calendar for the wonderment, for the amazement, for the long marvel and ponder of the miracle that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we're here today. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then all that we're doing here today is for naught. doesn't. Make any difference whatsoever. We, he says, as we read just a moment ago, are most to be pitied. Because the recognition is that for all of us and for all of human history, death and the reality of death is very present. And as we all might give testimony to today, the recognition of it is inescapable unless there has been a power that has overcome the grave. Unless there is a hope that beyond the moments where your heart and my heart stop beating, when our lungs stop breathing, and we close our eyes for the last time, that we know that it won't be the last time. That the Lord Jesus Christ is already broken forth in victory over the grave. And we as his people found in him have the hope that we too in his return will come back to life. And we'll forever live eternally in his presence. You know what that means if that's true? It means we're just getting started friends. This is all just beginning. We've got a long time to be able to be together. All eternity in the presence of Christ. Oh yes, we may slumber for many generations in the grave. But our spirits in present with Christ around the throne of grace until He returns. And when He returns, the graveyards become fields of celebration and party. As we come to welcome our Savior and our Lord home. As He builds a new heavens and a new earth with us. I want to ask you, do you believe that that's true? Do you really? Do you live according to that truth? Is that truth present to you? Even this morning, as we gather in the presence of the Lord, is this just a day to put on some pastel colors? Have a really great feast after church? Hunt for some eggs? Whatever it is that's your family tradition, what is this day really about? Do we believe that all that we're doing is is a self-help, positive thinking project? To get ourselves thinking about things in a a better way that life might feel resurrected. As if our salvation was how we feel. Oh, I hope it's not how we feel. Because I don't know about you, but I feel all kinds of things all of the time. A lot of them not very good. I guarantee you tomorrow morning won't necessarily immediately be resurrection day for me. I'll be tired and sluggish. And I'll need to be re-stirred up with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. We have come here today not to testify about a subjective feeling or a hopeful fancy. We have come here to discuss an objective reality. A truth that is inescapable. That Jesus, in time and space and history, is the only one who has, in his own power, through the merits of his own strength, conquered sin and death. And if you're in him, we're just getting started, friends. It takes us a while to wrap our heads around that one, it takes a lifetime. In fact, it took the Apostle Paul many, many years to understand the recognition of who Jesus is and then to come into the reality of why this resurrection is so important. In fact, he had to be weaned away. Weaned away from the things that he thought were really important. The things that he gave so much of his life and energy to. He had to be brought to a place where he despaired of himself. And realize that the only person that he could place his trust in, the only true treasure and hope in life, is the Lord Jesus Christ in him alone. But it took the Apostle Paul a long time, and to be honest, it takes, well, all of us a long time. The fact of the matter is, many of us are more consumed, are we not, with the things of this world than the things of the world to come. We're more interested in the bottom line of our gains here than we are about eternal investments. We're far more fascinated about the things that are going on on the headlines and the news of today than the good news that is enduring in the scriptures. The fact of the matter is we have to go through life, and in going through life we have to learn what's really valuable. You know where we tend to find... The things that are really valuable. In the moment when so many things in our lives are stripped away. In the moment of affliction. In the moment of suffering. In the moment where we have to stare the reality of death and eternity in the place. All of the sudden, how our sports teams did aren't quite as important to us. It was the opening day of baseball this last week. I've been watching the Cubs all week long. It's very important to me that they win. But it becomes less important to me when I have to stare eternity in the face. And I can look at the game as if it's a game because it's only a game. But I can see that the living, breathing persons before me and us together, this thing called life is for real. And eternity hangs in the balance with us. We we're all seeking a fortune. We we're all seeking a treasure. And sometimes the treasures of our life have to be taken away from us in order for us to find the true treasure. That's ultimately what Pete and Delmar and Everett had to learn in O Brother, Where Art Thou? You'll remember in 2001 that Cohen Brothers film, that opening scene with the blind railroad, Pump car, the man who is there upon it, prophesying over Pete and Delmar and Everett, that happy fugitive band. As he prophesies over them, he, the blind man, is actually seeing into the future. And you know what he says? He says to them, You seek a great fortune. And indeed they did. And you will find a fortune, he says. But it will not be the fortune that you seek. There's a note of foreboding in the words that that man was speaking over the three of them. They thought they were going to get rich. They weren't. They were going to get rich in a very different way. And it was going to be, as he says in that opening lines of that movie, a long and perilous road. But vouchsafe, it will usher to your salvation. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 13 that there are things so valuable. There is one thing so valuable that it's worth selling everything that you have to get that one thing. He calls it the pearl of great price. He calls it the hidden treasure in the field. Do you have anything in your life that you can say is of such supreme value that it's worth selling everything else in your life just to have that thing? What would it be? What would it be? You see, as the Apostle Paul raises that question before us, in this hour as we look at Philippians chapter 3, he's telling us this, the things that you have thought are your gains in life may actually be your losses. And the things that really look like losses in your life, may actually be your gains. That sometimes the best thing that the Lord ever does for us, is to take away from us, the things that we cherish more than Him. That we might count them as loss, in order to embrace the surpassing worth, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's Paul's words here in Philippians chapter 3. Do you know Christ in that way? Do you know the power of His resurrection? Do you see Paul here in verses 7 and 8 here in the text? He's playing a count it for us. Listen to the way he says it. Whatever I gained, I count it as loss. For the sake of Christ, indeed, I count everything loss. For there's a passing worth, gain. Of Christ Jesus, for his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rugg- rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I want you to see the Apostle Paul drawing in the middle of a sheet of paper a line, and the, the, the line is a, is a ledger between two columns: a column of gains and a column of losses, a column of profits and a column of of deficits. He says that he has for his, his life gained all kinds of things. But at the moment that he saw Christ, he realized they weren't really gains at all. But indeed, he had to count them as, as deficits. He moved them to the other side of the ledger sheet. He had for so long, as he reflects upon himself earlier in this chapter, remembering his family heritage. And had thought, man, I'm, I come from good stock. I was circumcised on the eighth day, born of the chosen people of Israel. I am a child of the covenant, branded and marked, as it were, with God's love. I'm even from the tribe of Benjamin, that special tribe, whose geographical holding is the very temple and the holy place in Jerusalem. I come from that tribe. Maybe you're a little bit like him as you think about your ancestry and your lineage and where it is that you've come from. And you take some level of pride in it. There can be a a good kind of pride, if you will. A love of place. And a love of family. But most of us take an identity in those things. It takes an idolatrous place in our lives. It becomes too important to us to the point that it actually becomes an obstacle to the real, true treasure and value of life. That's exactly what happened for the Apostle Paul. He became so interested in the riches of his family legacy that he lost sight. couldn't see the deficits of his own heart and life. He took pride... In the things that were not his to take pride in. As I was reading this week in Philippians 3. And thinking about Paul's life. I couldn't help but remember Miss B. Kayson. Miss B. Kayson was a sweet southern woman. Elderly in the church that I grew up in. A model to the community. A humble servant. Always doing something for someone. She, she loved living in that little Southern Mississippi town. She loved the heritage of the South. She would regularly stop you and talk about the Civil War and how it didn't go as according to plan. And then she'd talk about Southern hospitality and she'd talk about the culture of of Southern life. And she loved to say, American by birth but Southerner by the grace of God. I want you to hear the Apostle Paul in that an Israelite by birth, tribe of Benjamin by the grace of God. That's what he's saying. That's how the apostle Paul understood himself. That's how Miss Cason was. Now maybe some of you who are transplants to the south go, "I don't know why she took such pride in this place." I love the east side of Chicago or the bay. Where I was in California or the countryside in England or the Horn of Africa or wherever it is you've grown up. We all have our places that we love. and We all have the things about our family, as strange and as weird as our families can be, that we love. Those are the realities. They're ours. At least we know them. Paul is in that kind of place. And you might have thought if Paul had seen that as a gain, it was on the, the profit side of the column. That maybe he would have become a spoiled, entitled kid. Growing up with the right family, with the right privileges. Going to the right schools. Checking all the right boxes. That he would walk around as some of us parents get worried about living in the bubble of Williamson County. Well, our kids grow up to be entitled kids. Oh, Lord save us from that. The fear of that would have certainly been something that was true among the people of Israel. God's chosen people. That's pretty significant. But Paul wasn't like that. He saw the deposit that was made to him, and he put it to work. He used the privileges, and he used the blessings that the Lord had given him, and he didn't rest on his laurels. He employed it. You know what he said? He said, I became a lawkeeper. I became faithful, not just to the what I'd received, but in laboring to be a good old boy. I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were, well, they were, the, they, were the, they were the religious elite. I mean, if you wanted to see the upstanding of the community, the people who, who had it going on, spiritually speaking, Paul was one of those. He was a Pharisee. He refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a man who stands out among all of the others. He said, according to the law, I was blameless. He wasn't trying to say he was perfect. He knew better than that. What he was trying to say was, if you look at me from the outside, though, it'd be hard to find a blemish. I dress up pretty nice on Sunday morning. I make it through the week without anybody seeing any chinks in the armor. Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless according to the law, from right stock, successful, powerful. He's a blue-chip Williamson County family. He's educated in the best private school in town. Academic achievements, artistic triumphs, athletic accomplishments. He was probably elected homecoming king. Most likely to succeed. Second highest in his graduating class, salutatorian, because he left early that spring to go to Haiti to start an orphanage and couldn't quite keep up with all of his grades. He joined the best fraternity when he got to college, became the head quarterback at the college football team. He starred as John Travolta in a Broadway musical called Grease. He was elected student body president. His senior year graduated summa cum laude, but he couldn't go to graduation because he left early to go care for his ailing grandmother who was in throes of her death. Saw her through the end of her days and entered into medical school. Graduated top of his class, served thousands of patients worldwide, became a leading oncologist, ultimately coming up with a miracle jug that rescued everyone from cancer and is in line to win the Nobel Peace Prize. In the meantime, got married, had 2.3 kids and has a mansion in Belmede. That's what we're seeing in this text. Now you got it, right? That's what's going on in this text. Life is trending in the right direction. The ledger is filled up in the right way. Can't he count all of these things as gains? Well, don't answer that question just yet. You see, there's a question behind the question that we've not answered, we've left unanswered in all of this dialogue about profit and loss. We can't know if something is a true profit or a true loss until we're clear on what kind of treasure we're really after. What kind of treasure are we really after? Based upon what treasure it is that we're pursuing, only then will we know the nature of the ledger and how to mark that which is a profit and that which is a deficit. Before the Apostle Paul knew the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those things I just named were on the profit column. He was rocking it in every sense of the word. He was seeking a kind of fortune as he looked at his family The tribe, the nation, his law-keeping, his success, his power, his prestige. What he calls in Philippians 3, righteousness, which is the biblical word for being enough, for counting. For being able to stand before God and others and even within your own heart and say, I'm enough. Paul said that's what he stood on all the things that he'd been able to do, all the things that he had garnered in this life until Acts chapter 9 when he runs into the risen Christ Jesus. In a moment, this holiest of men in the first century falls on the ground prostrate as the glory of the risen Savior dawns upon him. We're told that he goes blind and pleads for mercy. And the Lord speaks to him, radically converts him, and calls him into the work of ministry. And then Paul says in Philippians 3, Whatever I've gained, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. He is the pearl of great price. He is the hidden treasure in the field. And it's worth losing everything that I quote-unquote have gained to move everything that I call a gain to the ledger side of deficit in order that only his name would be on the ledger side of gain. I've seen his beauty. I've seen his prize. I know his glory. I know what it is that he's done for me. And now that it's clear to me, I know that the only way to live is to live in him and to know the power Of his resurrection. He says it in this passage this way. I've come to know the surpassing worth. Of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's come to know the surpassing worth. Of Christ Jesus. My Lord. You see Paul had thought like. So many other people that he was a pretty good person right. He thought that at the end of the day he would he would come to to heaven to God and and he would be able to measure up all the good things he's done and and there'd be a lot and he would there'd be a few bad things you know handful of things you know he cussed a little right or he lied from time to time his internet surfing wasn't always above board but there's little things. In light of those little things, he had big things that he had done. that were going to far outweigh. Now, he knew people like Adolf Hitler are not going to make it in, right? I mean, and Jim Jones, right? I mean, murders and rapists like those folks. I mean, they're not going to make the cut. But folks like, well, folks like us. I mean, Paul. Paul was a good, upstanding church-going, middle Tennessee guy. He knew the Bible better than most of us. It was probably more faithful than, than, than most of us. Surely, Paul got in. That was, he, Paul was, in a very real sense, living life as if I'm worthy on all that I've done. But here was the catch. And it, and it took a little while to register with Paul, and it does for us. And we have to constantly keep this before our mind's eye. The Lord has not put us in a position of power to determine whether we cut muster or not. That's not, in our, that's not in our bailiwick. That's not in our responsibility. It's not what we get to choose. At the end of the day, friends, it doesn't matter what you think about you. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about you. But it matters a great deal what God thinks about you. And what He says about you. And how He knows you. And when we begin to read the pages of Scripture, what we find is that there are, if I could put it this way, admission requirements in order to get into the presence of the Lord and living in the joy and the eternity with Christ forever. Now, that may seem to you to be not very gracious, to have admission requirements, but we, everything has admission requirements, My elders know that I'm applying to to do a little bit more study. I can't seem to get out of school for whatever reason. I'm drawn back into school. I've been having to apply to get back into school, see if they'll let me study again. And as I was looking over certain degree programs, I read things like, must have a Master of Divinity from an accredited theological school, must have a 3.25 grade point average during your Master of Divinity studies, must have six hours in biblical languages, three years of full-time ministry of experience after completing the M.Div.; reference forms, essays, etc. Long and laborious process to go through. In order for them to say, all right, you're in. Now, when it comes to getting into a program like that, we understand why, right? I'm really grateful, for instance, that my doctor went to school. I'm really grateful. I, you know, I'm sure that you know, eight years of internship and fellowship afterwards was tough, but by golly, I wouldn't see him if he had not done it. The, the process was what fit him to be in the role. We all functionally live that way. That's the way life is actually structured. And so, why is it surprising that God would have an admission process, both in relationship with Him and to be able to dwell in eternity in heaven with Him? And so, we need to know what it is. And so, He gives it to us the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 Thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make a graven image, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not cheat or steal. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And some of us are going, okay, do do, do pretty good. Thou shalt not covet. Ooh, got me on that one. But of course, if I've coveted, then I've wanted something more than the glory of God, which means that I've already committed idolatry, which is stealing from God the glory that He deserves which is not loving him, which is a kind of murderous intent, which is an adulteration of faithfulness. I I think I'm in hot water. And if you still think you're doing okay, it's okay. Just turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It gets easier. (laughs) I haven't committed adultery. Have you ever looked on a woman or a man lustfully? haven't murdered. Have you ever gotten angry? Oh. This kind of thought, word, indeed thing. Yeah. Well, it gets better. Matthew 5 48. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Oh. Be perfect. The admission requirements to be in relationship with God for all eternity. Just be perfect. Amen. Let's go home. No. What's going on in, I hope, all of your minds alongside my mind is I can't meet this standard. I don't get into this degree program. I don't get in the gateway to this work. So, what do I do? And this is what the Bible has been so clear on from cover to cover, even through all of its commands and all of its instructions. Is that God has always known since the fall, even before in time and eternity. He's known that we're not good enough. He's not a judge up in heaven who simply keeps his arms crossed at the bench. Waiting for you to get your act together to get in. You can't get your act together. You can't. Tell me when you've licked your thought life. And your words. He says every idle word will come to judgment. I speak a lot of words. That one worries me. Proverbs says where there are many words. There is never without sin. I take that seriously. That's concerning to me. I recognize the fact that these standards... Are way beyond the ability of what it is that I can accomplish and meet. And so, what do I do? How do I move forward? The Bible makes it very plain that we are to humble ourselves before the Lord and to cry out for his mercy, to cry out for his mercy. That's the step. The step is not for you to go, oh, it's really not that bad, lessen the standards, feel good about myself, compare myself to others. The goal is to look with a steely eye of faith into the Scriptures and not soften any of the hard edges of the commands of Scripture, but to recognize that for all of us, the judgment in the law is condemned, guilty. And none of us can escape it. Think of it, friends. You don't even uphold your own standards that you hold others to. And I'm not just speaking about you. I'm speaking about me. How in the world am I ever going to live up to the standards that are given here in the Scripture? Well, clearly, I'm going to have to humble myself before the Lord and cry out for His mercy. And here's what the Apostle Paul found out on that road to Damascus. When he was in the glory of the risen Savior, flat on his face, prostrate before him, completely undone, he began to realize there's no way I'm ever going to be fit to be in the presence of that glory. Unless that glory somehow makes me fit. Do you see, Jesus and his coming to earth and his living a perfect and sinless life was to be for you what you could not be for yourself. He came as your substitute. He came to take your place. He came because he saw in need and the love that he had for you. He longed to complete the law on your behalf and never have a stray word or a ranging thought or a slip up in action, but with full righteousness come and live the fullness of life, utterly acceptable in the sight of God. And then the only person who didn't deserve death decided. To go to the cross for us. And on the cross he paid the penalty for our sins. Romans 6.23 says for the wages of sin is death. The cost is death. The payment is death. Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it. And when he paid it on the third day he rose again from the grave. Which tells us that his payment was paid in full. It was completely accepted by the Father. He broke forth from the grave because of the wages of sin is death and He died on our behalf and He didn't stay in the grave. It meant that He'd completely paid it. There's no more debt. And if you have trusted in Him alone for your salvation as He is offered in the gospel, then you too have the payment of the fullness of your sins paid for because they were nailed to the cross when He hung there and bled and died for you. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you see faith? We've gotten this all wrong. Faith is not you getting your act together. Faith is knowing that you don't have your act together and trusting in the one who's got his act together, Jesus It's resting and trusting in Jesus alone. It's coming and resting in your whole weight of need upon Jesus Christ and finding your acceptance. In him and in him alone. Do you see why Paul could say, listen, after I had taken so much pride in the tribe of Benjamin and being an Israelite and circumcised on the right day, it was a law keeper and a Pharisee, and I had walked around with airs comparing myself to others, and I realized that true acceptance in the sight of God, even that emptiness inside of me that constantly screams you're not enough no matter how much you do, I realized it would never stop until I heard from God, No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is your hope and your certain salvation. The question in this text then is, do you really know Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection? Now maybe you say to yourself, I don't know. I think I do. I'm just not sure. Maybe. Maybe. How would I know? Paul goes on and he says this. You know that you have come in contact with the risen Savior and have trusted in Him alone for your salvation. When you have gotten to a place where you see all of the privileges and the blessings of your life and you can receive them gratefully, but they're not your identity. And you can put them on the column of loss. Notice, He doesn't even put them in a tally of zero. They're a deficit. Because so much of the time we trust in them and they become an obstacle for really knowing Christ. When you know when you can do that, and then you can come to the gain column and find the name of Jesus, and then hear Jesus say, take up your cross daily and follow me. And think to yourself, I think he just called me to die. But I would willingly die for anyone who has loved me like this. I would willingly die. Do you see, when you have met Christ, all the gains of your life become losses, and all the losses in following Christ become gains. And it's why this very Apostle Paul, when he is brought into trial and put in prisons and is tortured and scourged, we find him singing in the prison in Philippi. And we find guards coming to know the Lord. Because the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ has given him joy. His joy is not in having to be outside the bars. His joy is that he's found freedom inside the bars because he's got Jesus. He has come into such a saving, living relationship with Christ. That when he gets stoned, as he did often through the book of Acts, and is thrown out of the cities, he goes back into the cities and preaches again. That he he is learning to love the people who hate him. Isn't that the spirit of Jesus? As he hangs on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Isn't that the evidence that Christ is beginning to get into your life, that resentments are beginning to wane? Because you see how much you've been forgiven. And you're beginning to acknowledge in the difficult situations of your life that In the resurrection power of Christ, you're beginning to see them through the lens of Christ, so much so that you're willing to undergo any suffering or difficulty that you might be called to. In the moments where you're having that that challenge with your spouse, and you're headed down that normal track, and you think to yourself, I don't want to swallow my pride. It'll hurt to confess. Something dies in me when I have to say I'm wrong or forgive me. Die. Embrace it. In that moment, you're flooding it. The whole relationship with grace. You're being honest and real. Christ welcomes that. That coworker who's always under your skin and glares over you in the cubicle. You're always fighting over the copier. You know what I'm talking about. Act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. That neighbor, whoever it is. All of a sudden, when you begin to well up with impatience and frustration towards them, begin to reflect upon the fact of the matter of how patient and loving Christ has been with you. He's been married to you. He's been pursuing you. And you've been wandering from him into the things of this world forever. And he continues to love you. And as that begins to get into you, the resurrection power of Jesus is stirred. And you begin to move towards and not away. Don't you see how this begins to change everything? You see, the resurrection is not merely looking past. It's something that's gone, nor is it merely looking future. It's a present power that Paul says we must come to know. And he says it's come to know, we come to know it through the sufferings of the fellowship of Christ. Let me tell you, friends, this is a hard word, but it's an important word, and we must say it. Sometimes the very best thing that can happen to every single one of us is that we go through the afflictions and the sufferings and the turmoils of this life. Because you know what it does? It pries our hands off of the things that are never going to last. And it helps us see things the way that they really are. No one in the moment of eternity, in the moment of affliction, who's lying on their deathbed says, Man, I wish I could have just worked a few more hours. Or gone to a few more games. All of a sudden, their life is flooded with clarity. About what really matters and the beyond, and where we go from here. When we come to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're coming to that moment of clarity. And the Apostle Paul is saying, don't waste the suffering, but know this, that the afflictions that God brings into your life are to wean you from the affections of this life that you might totally trust completely in the gain of Christ and Him alone. Friends, this year, my prayer for us is that Easter wouldn't be one day of the year, but that it would become the living power by which every day of the year is lived. And by God's grace today, through the pouring out of His Spirit, may a little revival take place in your heart and in mine as we follow The one true treasure, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father in heaven, we pray to that end this morning. That you, knowing the meaningfulness of this word for every heart in this room in different ways. All of us in different ways. Need to know of our love and acceptance in you through Christ. I would pray, Lord, for the hearts today who are darkened and have never known the saving grace and power of your resurrection, that you would today through your grace break them wide open that they would receive you. And for us, Lord, who have slumbered and have lost the wonder and the marvel of what it is you've done, that you would restore us to the joy of our salvation. And today and going forward, we would walk in the power of your resurrection. Father, this is a gift and it must come from you. And so see us in this moment. Humbled and needy, casting our cares upon you, crying out for mercy. Come and grant us that mercy for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.